good morning everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30 and of course it's time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy and first up we have to say a very good morning to Virginia Haywood. Good morning Virginia. Good morning and what rain there's been this morning. There has been. I'm very pleased I'm leaving it behind, although I'm very pleased to see it as well. <laughs> well, you won't have to worry about your garden getting watered while you're away. Exactly. <laughs> I'm really looking... Because um, although we've had a bit of rain, the garden's not wet. No. You know, I've been, I've been, I've been um, operating on my garden, so I've been doing a lot of work in it, and I'm really surprised if I'm under the trees, the soil's still dry. Yes. So we need what we're having this morning, that long, slow rather than, you know, a sudden huge downfall which just runs off. Absolutely. So I'm quite pleased with yep. this morning. Yep, But I'm even more pleased to be getting on a plane this afternoon. <laughs> well, you're going to have to tell listeners all about your adventures coming up too, <laughs> yeah. But I have to say I'm very pleased that uh, I actually finally took Penny's advice and got out and planted all my garlic yesterday. Oh, good. So it's now been watered in overnight. So. Well, I didn't pick all mine <clears> last year. So yep. I've got all this garlic coming up. Yep, so you can I'm leave like, it in the ground quite happily. Yeah, for... so I'm quite pleased about that. And I'll, I'll be away for two months, so... It'll be ready. For... It'll be ready, well, getting ready when I come back. And it should because it's been there for that extra time. That's right. I should get some nice... Bob should be nice and big. large. Mm. Yep. Terrific. So I'm quite pleased about that. Okay. Even well... if it was an accident. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's, that's, that's the beauty of gardens. Yes. Um, they are very forgiving in some ways. Mm. They do allow us to be a bit sloppy and a bit forgetful. And uh... I cleared out a whole lot of uh, salvias and alstroemeria and found absolutely fabulous corms of... of um... Oh, what am I trying to say? The, the little corms that come up now. Oh, I've gone completely blank. But anyway, it's the same thing. Suddenly, here was all this stuff that I'd just buried under other plants. Right. I've done a lot of that. Saved things from death by pulling out other things. Yep. Okay. Mm. Brilliant. All right. We also have to say a very good morning to Greg Balderston from Longinimous Plants. Good morning, Greg. Good morning, Pam. And you've got a bit of news too. Yeah. uh, um, I'm going to close up the the nursery. Not that it's huge news, I guess, for for most people. Um, uh, yeah, just it's a bit quiet at the markets that I do, so I've decided to uh, uh, put more energy back into doing gardening work and and small stonework jobs and okay. consultancy and that sort of thing. So, yes. Um, but I just I'll still do mail order bulbs and and things like that you know, in summer. Uh, just won't be at the rare plant fairs and nurseries uh, in the markets and 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 so forth. So uh, yeah, it's a, a bit of a shame, but uh, it was fun. It was nearly ten years or so I did it for, so it was a uh, uh, a little bit of a, a journey um, and well worth doing. But I, I think yeah, I'll, I'll uh, in over the next few months sort of um, shut all that down and and just concentrate on the gardening and things. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, six months. That's a lot of travelling and 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 standing around at. at Markets all day, and yeah, particularly in the winter, out in the cold wind, and the well, and and it's it's sort of, I mean, if you see, if you go to markets and you and you see the stall holders there, you often don't think about how what work they put into actually getting to the market and setting up before you know by nine o'clock when you get there with your shopping bags and that's right, and uh, you know a lot of those stall holders have been up. Uh, for quite a few hours already and maybe mm. have driven uh, well over an hour in some cases and, um, you know, uh, often I'll, I'll be up till 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning packing my van and then getting up at 6 the next oh, morning to get to the market. That's not easy work. No, uh, and, and it's okay, 
you know, it's you don't even have to sell stuff to feel like you've achieved something for the day. But, um, you know, when you're sort of sitting at the stall and there's not really many people even asking you questions or anything, it's sort of like, oh, there's not really much point to this, is there? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's it, there's, you know, a lot of unpacking and packing the van and especially with the plants, they're quite heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I might have several hundred pots in the van and... Um, uh, yeah, there's a bit of work involved. So, oh, absolutely. Uh, um, and, yeah, as I say, it's, you sort of need something back for it, even if it's not monetary. Um, uh, and it's just, it's just sort of a bit quiet now, so um, I, I thought I'd, uh, yeah, finish up on that, yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, and are you going to keep doing the mail order? Yeah, so, so in uh, – I'd, I'd never – I've always – I've grown bulbs since I was, you know, was, uh, I think the first – pocket money over spent was uh at tesla's for some gladdies and crocuses uh with with some pocket money was about seven or eight um so i'm not going to stop growing the bulbs and i there's not that many people out there selling them too unfortunately um marcus harvey's gone now and you know Mm -hmm. uh, um a great great loss to uh any bulb collector was yeah the the sad news of marcus harvey's passing last year um and yeah, it's it's there's not there's no not many people out there. No, and also selling you selling those bulbs. Yeah. You you have got you know a real collection of bulbs. You've got some very very unusual things. And yeah, yeah. So and particularly in Australia where it's so hard to get things in. I yeah, mean, well, that, that's it's really valuable. Harder and harder too. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah, and and there are there's some great collections in Australia, but um, not everyone's uh, geared to putting it out there for sale. And mm. and quite a lot of people are happy to share the bulb sort of community is pretty happy to share seeds and bulbs, um, and even though I try and sell stuff, I the rarer stuff I only swap and, mm. and share with people who are serious bulb collectors. So there's uh, um, uh, there's a particular gladiolus that I've got which is extinct in the wild and and almost completely unavailable in Australia, and every year I put one or two bulbs of that aside. I've only got about twenty. Um, but I put one or two bulbs of that aside to send to someone who I know will look after it because mm. otherwise it's gone. That's and right. if my batch dies, which yep. it nearly has, I think I bought it off Stephen when I was 14. His, is, his batch is gone, so he, he hasn't got it anymore. Right. Um, and, yeah, so I've got this pot of bulbs that's been through all these things over all these years since I was 14. And then you realise what it is and that it's extinct in the wild and hardly anyone's got it. And you think, oh, that's I really need to, um, you know, I, I remember showing Gary Reed a, a, a pot of it in flower and him just almost breaking down because he'd been to South Africa so many times and it, it's a, a bulb he knew really well but right. had never seen in flower. Okay. And it was extinct, all these places he used to go to to see it. Uh, it's not there anymore. Right. And, is and, it growing? And he, he's this young upstart with a pot full of <laughs> flower. <laughs> so I, that, that was what started. I, I thought, oh, I've, got to, I've got to give one to Gary because, yes. you know, he's someone who appreciates it and I need to make sure it doesn't sort of die out in Australia. and Are there collections of it at Kirstenbosch and places like that? I'm not sure. Yeah, I I, I know there's not at the New York Botanic Gardens because I sent one there last year uh, to a guy I know uh, in the New York Botanic Gardens who collects South African bulbs and um, uh, he was very keen to get one and he sent me some seeds which are allowed into Australia uh, of um, Gladiolus uh, aureus, which is another nice golden Coloured, uh, very rare, gladi. So, um, 
uh, yeah, it's, and that's um, so every year I try and for those really rare things, there's no monetary value to them. Like I can't sell them because you know they I don't know how much they'd be worth. Mm. There's I've only I might only have five of something, and they're the only ones I well, know of. Also, sell, selling them um, will just dissipate them. Yes, yeah. that's right. So, I, and the idea is to give to them to someone like who, who Jane will... or Shirley Tonkin or yes. uh, Matt Murray and uh, up in Sydney or or um, uh, or Gary Reid or um, Ernie DeMarie who works at the the New York Botanic Gardens or someone like th- uh, that who I know is going to they're going to nurture a- appreciate it, and, it for yes. what it is and 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 then I know someone else who's serious about bulbs and also, will always have a collection. That's the Melton it. Botanic Gardens is starting a South African. Um, bulb collection. Oh, that would be interesting. So maybe to, uh, you should talk to John Bentley. Yes. Yeah, that would. That would Do you be know John? Thing. No, I don't think so. No. I will after the show. I'll give you his phone number okay. because they. I mean, a botanic gardens is an obvious place to yeah, try yeah, and get it, yep. even a little one. And like that's Melton. far more important than selling. And mm. yeah, and that's the other reason I'm going out of the nursery is because I'm not a very good salesman. <laughs> <laughs> I often talk people out of buying stuff because it's not the right thing and that's not what you're supposed to do when you're selling stuff. Oh, but you're doing the responsible thing. Well, it doesn't work financially. <laughs> no, I know. So often that's the case. So what is that glad? Uh, it's uh, Gladiolus citrinus. Atrinus. Uh, Citrinus. Citrinus. Yeah. And it's from South Africa. It's a South African species. It, they've lumped it in. It's a, one of those funny ones too where um, – you know, you, you read books and you look at experts, what they say on it, and there's the best book you can get on South African gladdies is by Goldblatt and Manning, and they say it's a trichonomifolius, which is another species, and I'm looking at it and they flower at different times. They don't look anything like, and these guys know what they're talking about, but I'm just looking at these, and they're two, I've got both of them, and they don't... They're, they're not the same. They're, they're similar. They're rela- definitely related. There's no doubt about that, but... I don't know. I don't think they're the same species. And there's other ones I've got labelled as different species, and they're meant to be different species, and they're from reliable sources and all that sort of thing. And I can't tell the difference between them. They look exactly the same. Right. <laughs> and, uh, so it's sort of you know, I don't know. It's, uh, to me, it's it's very it's different enough to at least be a subspecies yeah. of Trichonomophilus, yeah. and it's not in existence anywhere where you look it's yeah, it doesn't seem to be and certainly where it was growing in the wild is completely there is no wild there anymore yes yes, yes. it's terrible the isn't it? and, and we i mean there's so much of this there was a program on the abc yesterday about this tiny tiny little fish which is smaller than your little mm. fingernail and it only exists in a couple of tiny little ponds in outback queensland and some many years ago, they introduced an American tiny little fish, mm. which um, because it eats mosquitoes, mosquito larvae, mm. and that is displacing this and this little tiny little thing. It just sounds so beautiful, and it's it's on the verge of extinction because mm. yet again we've gone and introduced something yes. that outcompetes it in yes. its own environment. Mm. Yes, yes, you know. Ah. You mentioned uh, Melton Botanic Gardens. That's a perfect segue for me, Virginia, because um, I should get to community announcements and Melton Botanic Gardens is top of the list. So there you go. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> um, they are actually having an open day today out oh, at the good. gardens. Yep. Uh, this is taking place from 10am this morning through to 3 o'clock this afternoon. Uh, the gardens are at 21 William Street in Melton. Now, they're going to have guided tours, bird walk, plant nursery open, displays and discovery table, a display of nature-based quilts, uh, Greater Western Community Band will be playing, 
Uh, there'll be David and Tony Axon and their penny-farthing bicycle between 11 and 1. There'll be fairies in the sensory garden. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Uh, Aboriginal rock painting and refreshments by the CWA Owls. And all of that, there's free parking out there as well. So uh, that's all happening today. Listeners, if you've never been out to Milton Botanic Gardens, a wonderful opportunity to to head out there, uh, particularly to join in on a guided tour because, um, as you know, Virginia, Going on a guided tour makes, makes such a difference. Such a difference. It just changes things. It I, opens your eyes as to what mm, you're actually looking, looking at. at. Yes. Yes. Excellent. So, and, again, and, 10 till 3 at 21 Williams Street in Melton. And I do think people should who live out that side of town really should support this because this is a, a new initiative. It's a fairly new garden, new botanic garden, and it's so important when we get people coming together to make something like this work. I and think that, it's fabulous. Got such a strong friends group who've yes. been doing a fabulous job out there. And they also have a very good nurse, little nursery, so that's worthwhile as well. Now, the other thing that's happening out there, uh, which I'll, I'll mention in conjunction with their open day today, but they, uh, as part of Reconciliation Week, uh, on Friday, the 2nd of June, so next Friday, they're also going to be doing um, a special guided walking tour, but this one is uh, specifically to look at the local Indigenous plants from the Melton region and uh, the Aboriginal use plants, including bush tucker plants. Now, the gentle walk is about one and a half hours. It'll be followed by morning tea, highlights of the natural features and remnant vegetation, Ryan's Creek and the Lake Indigenous paintings. There'll be uh, the Koori Student Garden, Indigenous People's Garden, Victorian Volcanic Plains Garden and the new Bush Foods Garden. So that is taking place, as I said, next Friday, the 2nd of June, 10am through to noon, which includes morning tea. You meet at the Depot and Plant Nursery at 21 Williams Street in Melton. Now, bookings are essential for this one, particularly they've got to cater for morning tea. So, as I say, bookings are essential and you need to phone John Bentley and uh, his number is 97433819. That's 97433819. Or you can email friends at fmbg.org.au. So friends at fmbg.org.au. So two wonderful happenings out there at Melton Botanic Gardens. Uh, now, also, uh, I should mention that the Australian Plant Society Keylor Plains Group uh, will have their next meeting again next Friday, June the 2nd, at 7.45. Uh, now, Sally Lamborn will give a presentation on weeds of Victoria's Central Highlands. The address is Rally Road Activity Centre, which is 54 Rally Road in Maribyrnong, if you'd like more information, you can contact the secretary, Anne, and her number is 9336-3228. That's 9336-3228. And uh, that's also, as I said, next Friday, June the 2nd at 7.45. Now, coming up uh, next Saturday, out at uh, Pepper Tree Place, uh, which, of course, is on the corner of Sydney Road and Bell Street in Coburg. They have their next incredible food swap. Now, this is also including a composting um, 
Hub and Worm Farming Workshop uh, with Natasha Van Velzen at 11am till 12 noon. Uh, so Pepper Tree Place is a local composting hub where people of Moreland can bring their organic waste to be composted instead of going to landfill. Now you can learn about the newly renovated composting hub and register as a participant. Uh, this is also a hands-on worm farming and composting workshop to learn about how you can turn organic waste into gardening gold. Now as well as the, um, the workshop, There'll be music in the garden with Bobby and the Pins, which is a, a barbershop uh, a cappella, 1950s a cappella group. 11.30am for that one. That is free. And, of course, they'll have their usual swap table, plant nursery with affordable plants and pop-up pepper tree uh, place cafe. So that's next Saturday, 10am through till 2pm. Uh, now... Uh, <coughs> Wednesday of next week, the 7th of June, uh, Friends of Burnley Gardens are having their next plant sale. This is 12 through till 3 p.m. Uh, they'll have veg vegetable seedlings, native plants, salvias and more. The location is the Carimbia Lawn, which is behind the Student Union building. Parking is on Yarra Boulevard and they have the full uh, plant list up on their website, their website is www.fobg.org.au and please note that payments are by cash only. So that's the plant sale next Wednesday, 7th of June, 12 through till 3pm at Burnley Gardens. And finally, um, I need to mention again that the uh, Friends of Cranbourne Botanic Gardens are running their next... Uh, a uh, big program, a very special day with Attila Capitani. He's going to be talking about Australian succulents as well as boabs and bottle trees. Now, it's a full program for the one day. Uh, it starts with uh, at 10 a.m. Attila will be in the garden shop. Then uh, he'll move into the auditorium for morning tea and to chat to everyone. Then his first talk, which is on Australian succulents, will take place 11 through till 12. Then again at 12.30, he'll be back in the garden shop. Lunch uh, will take place after that. And then the afternoon program commences again with Attila in the auditorium to chat to people. His talk on boabs and bottle trees will commence at 2. And uh, then he'll finish the day having another chat in the auditorium with people and then in the garden shop. Now, you can book for both presentations, or if you'd rather attend one talk only, then you can book for one talk. So the price for the day, uh, for the morning talk on Australian succulents, including refreshments, members of the Friends Group, $20, non-members, $25, students, $10. For the afternoon talk on boabs and bottle trees, again, including refreshments, it will be the same cost. $20 members, $25 non-members, students $10. If you want to attend both talks with refreshments, members $30 and non-members $40, students $15. Uh, now, bookings are essential. Uh, you can go to the website, which is uh, www.rbgfriendscranburn, all one word, .org.au, so that's .rbgfriendscranburn.org.au 
Uh, or if you'd like further information, you can phone 8774-2483. That's 8774-2483. All right, it's uh, high time we invited our listeners to join us this morning. If you'd like to ask a gardening question, we have Virginia Haywood, who's guide out at Royal Botanic Gardens, Melbourne. We have Greg Boulderstone from Longinimus uh, Plants, who can talk all about bulbs do give us a call. That number is 94190155. That's 94190155. Virginia, tell listeners where you're off to and what you're planning to do. Before I do that, I'll just mention that it's Big Anne's Day, which is the Botanic Gardens of Australia and New Zealand. So all the Botanic Gardens throughout Victoria will be having special things. So it's really worth people going to their Botanic Gardens today. I know at the Botanic Gardens in Melbourne... They've got lots of walks being put on. Uh, Michael McNabb, who runs all of the um, horticulture for the Botanic Gardens, is taking a walk at 10. Andrew Laidlaw, who's the architect designer for the gardens, is taking a walk at 11. And there's various other walks. However, for those walks, you do need to ring first. For the Melbourne Botanic Gardens, that's 9252-2300. And there will be a whole lot of things on at Cranbourne and in Bendigo, Ballarat, everywhere. So people really should go to their botanic gardens today. There'll be very good events, which no doubt is one of the reasons Milton's having its That's open right. day today. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So if you have, um, a, you know, a local botanic garden in your area, by all means go along today and, and support it and have a look and see what what you can learn about your own botanic gardens. And I've just come back from Sydney and I have to say the Melbourne Botanic Gardens is so beautifully designed compared to Sydney. I mean, this is because of the person who was there in the 1850s or 1860s, but it, they've held that design and, it's, and it is such a good design. It is held over all these years. And it's, it, it is meant to be one of the four best botanic gardens in the world. But when you're there all the time, you tend to just take it for granted. But when I go to another one, I think, oh, my God, actually Melbourne is fabulous. Yes. You know, whereas Sydney is very open, it doesn't have the same it, – it, it feels much more like a park. It doesn't have the botanic garden sense. I agree. And it's so commercial. Last year when I was in Sydney, they were putting up this big structure and they were building it, so I didn't, um, didn't see what it was going to be like. And I went to have a look at it last week. Oh, I hated it. Oh, dear. It is just full of bright... It's, it's the biggest, apparently the biggest vertical garden in Australia. So this big wall, and it's just covered in bright, bright, bright flowers, gerberas. And, I mean, oh, I just didn't get it. You know, right. the floor is concrete, which I didn't particularly get. And then there's just huge bays of really loud flowers. It was like a really, really cheap... Um, florist who hadn't got it together to display well. I really didn't like it. Okay. And I just thought, oh dear, Melbourne Botanics Gardens really is a very, very fine place. And Absolutely. We, and, and we forget it because we're Melbourne people. You know, we do. You, you forget what is there. Yep. And I went to Cranbourne a week ago, two weeks ago, and that's something else we forget. I mean, it's tucked away down at Cranbourne and it's just so magnificent. Mm. So I really think we need to be using our botanic gardens more. Absolutely. Mm. And and the other thing is um, they're not static gardens. No, that's absolutely so much. You, you know, you, 
I mean, one of the things we do when we meet as guides just to talk about what we're doing, you know, say, oh, do you realise such and such is out now? You know, oh, we must go down to that bit of the garden. A whole lot of things is happening because you know, it's a big garden. It's oh, yeah. And long term too because trees get old and die. And, That's and right. Think, so it's like no garden's a static thing. It's uh, always changing and you need to plan, like you were saying before, I mean, the original plan was from the 1860s, mm. uh, but um, it still needs to continue on too. You can't just plant something and then a hundred years later, you're going, "Oh, that's what it is." And that's, one of the interesting, <laughs> keep adding to it. One cause... of the interesting <laughs> things about Melbourne and about Australia is, you know, our trees don't get rings in the same way as they do in in Europe. You know, and and they're not living as long, which is something we're only sort of beginning to discover Just to figure now. Out now yeah. Yes, and they grow a bit faster too. Depending they grow on where faster, they are, and uh, some course, of them. Yeah. I mean, we've. I, I was asked to take um, a walk of botanists from um, America. And and I took them to one particular tree and I said, oh, what do you think that is? And not one of them got it right. It was a Monterey cypress. It was from California. Mm. And the reason they didn't pick it was because it was four times larger than anything they'd ever seen. <laughs> well, there you go. You know, these, I mean, these things are... You yeah, know, the growth rates are different. It, and, totally different. And, yeah. And, um, but as you say, it's, it's sort of the, the whole uh, static nature of those gardens. It's, it's not, not a thing of any garden and... To go and see one of these gardens at different times of the year, it's mm. a completely different experience mm. and there's always something new happening in anyone's garden, yes. um, but especially in the botanic gardens where you, you get to see plants that you wouldn't otherwise. No. Um, I mean, uh, and there's a couple of Tristaniopsis, which is an, uh, an Australian big tree, the um, a, a water gum, and they plant them in Clifton Hill as street trees. Now, the ones in the botanic gardens... There's one particularly fabulous one which has huge branches coming down to the ground and it must be 50 foot wide. It is huge, you know, and you just can't do that sort of thing if you don't, if you don't have those really big spaces. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, the other thing too is that I know, um, I know at, at uh, Melbourne Botanic Gardens they are putting some very serious thought into uh, succession planning for climate change. Yes. Because our climate, whether we like it or not, our climate is, is getting warmer. And uh, some of our plantings there just aren't going to survive mm. with that change in temperature. Mm. So, you can see uh, some, like uh, the street trees out the front of uh, my property in, in Romsey, uh, elm trees that were planted, you know, 100 or so years ago. I'm not exactly sure when they were planted. But they're struggling, and they weren't always struggling because no. they got to a certain age quite well. And now you've got trees that should be fairly healthy because they've been there so long, and they've got to that size, uh, just not shooting. And of, of course, this is one um, of the real problems with elms because because of what happened in Europe, and all the elms died. And we had in Melbourne, we had one of the last stand of elms in the world. Yeah. And of course, with climate change, they're they've got a double stress of as well as the elm beetles and well, and the everything beetle, else. But the uh, beetle has reached New Zealand, but it, or at least, the, but it hasn't got here. Yeah. But the, and so it, our collection is really important. But with climate change, we have to uh, rethink the trees we're planting because mm. you know you plant trees for two hundred years, three hundred right. years. So you have to take into account mm. the fact yep. that it's getting hotter, yep. even if some of our politicians don't think so. <laughs> exactly. Mm. Okay, back to your trip. Well, I'm off to London. And one, uh, uh, some of the listeners know that I lived there for 20 years. So I, I go back because you know a lot of my friends are still there. And um, 
I love going back and I love going and looking at the gardens. But one of the things that I'm going to do this time is go with one of my good friends to visit the oldest forest in Europe, which is in up in the top of Poland and across into Belarus. Um, and unfortunately, after, it's it's a it's a World Heritage site, and the Polish government has decided logging is a good idea. So they've just started to log the oldest forest in Europe. And it's so important because it, you know, cause it's been untouched. Isn't there any protection from World Heritage listing? Goodness me. Well, there's a big fuss going on. There was a big I would hope so. I, I what, just, what sort of forest is it? Is it, they, is it a conifer forest? No, no. It, it, it's, it's mixed. Yep, it's, okay. it's mixed. And, it's, and because of it, it's so old, I just posted a, um, an article about it on my Facebook page. You've seen that, yeah, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, I, I didn't get a chance to read it, so <laughs> you know, but, yeah, you must read it. Yeah. though. but and this came from the Guardian, so if somebody's interested, you know, just look in the Guardian, and it's it's just totally tragic that yeah governments can be so stupid. Mm. I mean, we've got one tree planted just by the visitor centre in um, the Botanic Gardens in Melbourne. That was a, it's an it's a gum tree, and you know, when you look at it, it doesn't look particularly special. Probably a bit like your um, your bulbs, some of yeah, your yeah. bulbs. Yeah. But it was only discovered in 1995. It wasn't even – I mean, obviously the Aboriginal people who lived around it knew about it, but it had never been listed by science before. Yeah. You know, if, if we're still discovering things, mm. well, how can we just willy-nilly go and destroy? Goodness it, me. So I'm going to – because, of course, one of the things that might keep that forest alive is if – if it can be proved to the Polish government that the tourist potential, mm. I mean, it's the Adani, uh, Adani mine against the Great Barrier Reef. It's that thing. What's more important, the destruction or the tourism? Yes. yes. And, and regrowth is different. I know from mm. wandering the forests of Mount Macedon, um, that was clear felled in the 1860s or 1850s. And you can still see in the bush where they did that. You know, you can see – and that changed what that forest was. So the forest that I'm climbing through up there uh, now isn't the forest that it was 200 years ago. Mm. Um, and it won't recover. It's, it's changed it permanently. It's, it, there's places where it's got back to a fairly healthy state. Um, but when you log like that, it's, it affects the whole, the whole thing. It's, a, it's not just cutting the trees down. You're... You, all the understory plants are affected because they can't grow because there's no understory anymore. And you, and and you the change fung- the soil structure. And the fungi structure. changes. And, 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 and you potentially have erosion as well. The, yeah, the whole and introduce species is, that can now yes. take hold as weed, you know, pioneer, yes. pioneer weeds and things like that. And you just – that doesn't always reset itself back to what it was beforehand. And so those small pockets on earth that are left how they are – are very important and it's yeah. unbelievably important. <laughs> yes, it's but it's hard to you know. That is one of the reasons Macedon got settled, wasn't it? Because it was almost it was clear felled. Yeah, yes. yeah, mm. yeah. That and the combination of it being on the road to the gold mines, and not too far from Melbourne, mm. far enough away from. I, I guess the, when you look at who who was settling there in Mount Macedon, it was far enough away from the the, the, outs, the, the peasants of Melbourne <laughs> to build a a nice big mansion up on the hill and. Uh, and grow some, European trees and things like and that. And somewhere yeah. that was cool. Yep, yeah. Yes, and that was their escape like from mm. the heat yep. of, of down here. Mm. Because it was settled. Macedon was settled well before my patch up in the Yarra Valley or the Dandenongs. Oh, yes. It was the first sort of 
Yeah, was, I think the, the the house I grew up in was built in eighteen the early eighteen seventies, uh, and it's one of the oldest houses up there still. Um, there's a few a little bit older, but yeah, so around late eighteen sixties, eighteen seventies. But by that stage, they'd cleared a lot of forest, and mm. there were already people living there. But they were living in lean-tos against trees on the north yes. side of the hill, and yes. um, you know, they're all the log the loggers and and uh, millers and things like that. So. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's, it, and as I say, you can still see the effects. Like walking down the forest, you can see creeks that were used to drag the logs down, and all these years later, I can still see where they dragged the logs through the forest and where they completely changed the fl- floor of the valley, where they'd pull all the logs into the valley floor yes, and then right. drag them down to the timber mills. Right, and it's still all that time later, you can still see the erosion that was caused after it was clear felled and how things have grown back. And not how they were. Yes. Um, it, it's and and other spots where they've where they clear felled it and the soil disappeared mm. and it could never it can never return to how it was because there's no soil left yes. because uh, you know cold climate rainforest. Uh, you always think of that rich mountain soil. Absolutely. But sometimes it's not that deep and it's on rock. Yep. And once you clear fell it and it rains a bit, the soil's gone. There's no yep. soil. Yep. Um, you know, it's taken millions of years to build up all that soil from leaf litter, and once you take away what's actually producing the soil, which are the trees, mm. then that soil disappears very quickly mm. um, and there's nothing to protect it and hold mm. it down and create an environment for all the other things that make it a nice spot to grow, um, including the fungi as well, which you don't often think about because it's beneath the soil. And Those shots yeah. that you put on Facebook of the, f- of the fungi in Macedon are just extraordinary. It's, it's pretty amazing up, up what's underneath the trees up there, yeah. I can't believe how much... Yeah, there's, oh, there's about uh, at least 250 species I reckon I've found in the last couple of years. Um, and this is in a small spot too. It's not like, you know, acreage or anything. It's, it's mm. Mount Masson's not a huge place, but uh, it, it's there's a lot of... And as you say, you look at that forest in Europe, um, it's been there for... And all the mycorrhizae it, you know, has been undisturbed. Yeah, and yep. how little, how few places on earth are left with undisturbed soil now. Yep. Exactly. Mm. So it, it, as you say, it's it's certainly something that's got far more value than anyone really, well, not anyone, but uh, most people with power give it credit for, yeah, mm. <laughs> which is a shame. You are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. Um, in the studio this morning we have Virginia Haywood and Greg Boulderstone. If you'd like to join the discussion or if you'd like to ask a gardening question this morning, we'd love to hear from you. That number is 94190155. So, Virginia, from going to the forest, um, where else? Well, um, one the main reason I go back is to uh, is to see friends, and I'm going down to Turkey with Claire, who I worked with at the House of Commons for ten years. So we're we're only just going to one small area, and it'll be hot, which will be a bit weird. Um, and otherwise, what I'm intending to do is to go and see friends, and while I'm there, go and visit gardens, mm. because that's what I love. And of course, last year I went to Madagascar with Stephen, and that was about visiting, well, not gardens, but visiting wild spots, visiting amazing places. Uh, I wonder, he did have still have one place on his trip for this year, didn't he, when we spoke to him a couple of weeks ago? Yes, he did. There'd been um, a cancellation, I think. Mm. Because you know, both you and I have been to Madagascar with Stephen and it's absolutely extraordinary. And, and again, um, 
they've had a, they, they've, they've had to do so much work to try and persuade the locals to preserve some of that pristine um, rainforest rainforest again. in Which Madagascar because removed. it's getting logged like you wouldn't believe um, for the cattle for the zebu. Mm. And uh, and again, they're having to really try and encourage the locals um, in to, whatever way they can to preserve to see the, the last remnants mm. and to see the value and, 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 and to preserve the wildlife as well. Mm. And, the, and they are doing that in Madagascar. And when you think about what we're doing to the Barrier Reef, you wonder that we can't work that one out. Mm. You know, mm. it's just it is extraordinary. Although, And, of course, what, the pressure in Madagascar is people are really poor. We don't even have that excuse. Mm. But yeah, I loved Madagascar. I thought Madagascar. Oh, it, I thought it was hard. It's not. No, it's not easy. I'll, I'll grant you that. Mm. And I believe the roads are even worse than when I was there. <laughs> the roads were absolutely appalling. Yeah, but it's it's just such a wonderful opportunity, and it's not somewhere you could go on your own. It really be, needs mm. those local guides, and and you need a, an organised tour to be able to get to see, get into some of those areas, and and to know what you're looking at again. Mm. And we couldn't go right down south because it was not safe and much more unsafe than when you were there. Yes, and that whereas ver- I did get down south. Mm. And that very much made me feel that, you know, it was good to be on an organised tour and with people who understood what was happening locally. Absolutely. And I thought Antanarivo was an extraordinary city. I mean, I love extraordinary cities and it was a really extraordinary city. It's, it's, it's built on these massive hills. You just go up and down and up and down. It's, it's really lovely in some ways. I, uh, and, of course, the best way to get to Madagascar is through Mauritius and I thought Mauritius was rather divine as well. I'd never been there either. Lots of colourful Hindu temples. Yeah, and just such a beautiful cultivated area in Mauritius, which I didn't have any idea of till I got there was actually empty till the Dutch arrived. Mm. It, it had not been settled, whereas Madagascar was originally settled from, with people from the Malay Peninsula, which is also, you know, you wouldn't, given it's so close to Africa, you would yeah. expect right. that to be. That's right. But that's the same with the flora and fauna there. It's been that long removed from the gene pool of any other continent. That That's why it's so remarkable it's so unique. and unique. So total, yes, yeah. it's, in that way, it's very like Australia. Yeah. Yep. You know, we've got things that are just not anywhere else mm. in the world. Yes. So it is. It's very exciting. And, uh, you know, I love going back to Europe, but going somewhere like Madagascar reminds me why it's important not just to go because it used to be home, go back to London to see all my friends and then go and visit English gardens. And the one thing I'd really like to do at some stage is go to New Zealand to look at gardens because when you look at the oh, so many of the interesting new plants in the nurseries, they've been bred in New Zealand. Mm. You know, that red, those deep red magnolias that you can now buy, they were bred in mm. New Zealand. Some of those absolutely stunning geraniums were bred in New Zealand. A lot of the best dahlias that are like the Bishop of Landau dahlias they're all, all called, you know, Big delphiniums too that uh, Dennis Norgate used to grow, the yeah. huge giant things. They come all, from New Zealand yeah, as well. New Zealand yeah, they, they're, think, yeah, they're really breeding fabulous new um, garden plants in mm. New Zealand. Mm. So I figure they've got to have fabulous gardens and I haven't been there. I really like to go and have a good look. Yes. Uh, well, that, that number again, uh, if you'd like to join us this morning, we'd love to hear from you, 94190155. We are running through until 9.15, our usual time slot, so you've got about an hour to jump on the phones and ask a gardening question. Uh, and also a reminder that, of course, uh, June is the month when 3CR runs its annual Radiothon 
Now, uh, the Gardening Radiothon is uh, crucial to um, uh, bringing in some income for the station for the next 12 months. Uh, the date of our Gardening Radiothon will be the 25th of June this year. So this is an early reminder to please save up your uh, spare change, whatever you can. We're going to have so many goodies to offer you this year. It's, um, I think we're going to have a record amount of, uh, of goods and things to entice you with. But we're already starting to overflow with some of the products. So uh, put down uh, the 25th of June in your diaries and um, join in the fun and uh, certainly try and pick up some wonderful uh, goodies for yourself or as prizes if you're in a garden club or as uh, Christmas gifts for family and friends uh, because it will be a lot cheaper than anywhere you can buy them commercially. And, uh, of course, at the same time, you're really helping 3CR and in particular the gardening show to to stay on air for the next 12 months. We rely totally on the public for funding and uh, we really do need your support. So 25th of June, not that far away. An, but, Im- uh, an important point that not a penny that keeps this station going comes from either advertising or from the government. You know, it's terribly important that people support us. All our running costs mm. do come from the public. Mm. Yep. Mm. And, of course, it costs a lot of money to uh, just even think of the electricity bill. For us to broadcast, even in the time slot of, of the gardening show. Mm. So uh, that's where we, we definitely need your support for the next 12 months. All right. Um, Greg, I know you brought in a couple of plants this morning. Let's have a chat yeah, about them. Yeah, there wasn't much. Uh, I was looking around the nursery last night and through my bulb collection, and if the snails or rain hadn't destroyed it or it wasn't in a huge pot that I couldn't carry into the studio, <laughs> yes. there wasn't actually that much uh, to look through. But... Uh, of course, I had to bring an oxalis in. Of course just, you did. Uh, you know, because um, everyone loves oxalis. Do you um, know how many oxaluses <laughs> you actually have, Greg? <clears throat> um, actually, not that many. There's uh, a, a friend down in, in Sunbury's got a much bigger oxalis collection. I had uh, a, a guy called Craig um, has some amazing oxalis. Okay. And I'm not sure where he's, he's got them from over the years. Um, and there's a few other gro- uh, oxalis collectors I know that have got a much better collection and then you look overseas and you realise that there's all these beautiful plants that we're never going to be able to get yes. because of the few bad cookies in the in the genus. Yes. Um, so I've, I've probably got a small collection of maybe about 30 or 40. Okay, <laughs> 30 or 40. But that's, that's out of 800 species, 800-odd yes, right. species. And right. that's what I, I usually – when people – you know, you say, oh, this is an ox- – they go, oh, what's that thing? And you go, oh, it's an oxalis. Oh, I don't want that. Um, and that's it's, you go. Oh no, it's one of the, it's one of the uh, uh, seven hundred and ninety five species that isn't a weed. I always uh, uh, tell as people opposed to the few that are. Yeah, I tell people I've got a big collection of oxalis of ten, <laughs> <laughs> most of which I've got from Greg. Yeah, <laughs> but but there are there's some real pleasant looking little oxalis that don't even look like oxalis. So mm. um, uh, the one I bought in today's Oxalis polyphylla, which is probably one of the first ones I ever got, actually, I, I, again off Stephen. Okay. Um, with pocket money when I was probably about 14 or 15. Um, and it's a very fine-leafed Oxalis. Um, if you've got a, a, an established clump in a pot or in the rock garden, it almost looks like a little conifer. Mm. Um, this one I've got here is only a, a, a pretty much a single stem. Um, but if you've got a nice little cluster of it, it's it's like a really fine-needled 
very dwarf conifer I mean, you, to a few inches tall. You never pick it as an oxalis just looking at the leaf. No. The flower is a giveaway. Yep. Uh, but looking at the foliage, you'd it, never pick not, it as an no. oxalis. Uh, unless you actually look at the how the, the foliage is built up close. Like from a distance, it, yeah, as I say, it almost looks like a, a, some sort of weird dwarf pine or, or something like, you know, a little conifery sort of looking thing. Um, but once you start picking the foliage apart, uh, botanically, you can actually see why it is in that genus and, right. what, and what the relationship is between it and yep. those weedy-looking ones. Yep. But as you say, it's definitely not obvious. Um, but like most oxalis, the flower is. The, the flowers are very similar pretty much all, through all the species, and it's only slight colour variations that really uh, change from species uh, between the species. So again, this one's you know, probably gets up to about uh, five or six inches tall uh, um, and it doesn't spread at all. It's a, it's a clumping bulbous oxalis. Okay. The bulbs look like little tulip bulbs. Uh, they're okay. only, they're only uh, about half, <laughs> half an inch long or so. Right. Um, and look very similar to tulip bulbs. If you, uh, if you got a bag of them from someone of bigger bulbs, you would expect it's some sort of species tulip or something until it shoots up its weird little shoots. Um, and it's got mid pink flowers with yellow yellow center. Um, but again, the, the the other thing with oxalis is the flowers don't tend to last very long on most of the species. They sort of have a flush of flowers whenever they do it. Uh, the flowers disappear fairly quickly, and you've got uh, for the South African uh, South African species, you've got something that grows all winter, and in a lot of cases is a very nice foliage plant. Mm. So. And you look at that a lot longer. It's like cyclamens as well, you know. Exactly. Cyclamen flowers are all pretty much uh, very similar in a lot of cases. Um, but the foliage variation is what the, the main difference in why collectors collect them is because of the foliage of the and foliage. the different. Yep. And, and you get to look at that for a lot longer too. So um, in that regard, it's, it's, it's quite a nice little foliage plant. Um, and... A lot of the other, you know, the, the uh, another one that's just finished flowering is Oxalis masoniana, which has a beautiful burnt, deep burnt orange sort of flower with the yellow centre. And again, it looks like a dwarf conifer when it's in foliage and it's got these beautiful, bright sort of reddish orange stems I've, with I've these little I've got quite tiny... a lot of that and I think it is an absolutely beautiful plant. Yeah, it's, and it's, I've it's now a great put it in plant. the garden. Yeah. I kept it in pots for years, but I've now put it in the garden because yeah. it is such a stunner. And it doesn't spread either. It's, mm. it's another clumping bulbous plant um, that doesn't really spread unless you dig it up and move it. Um, and again, the, the often uh, a lot of the oxaluses even that are regarded as weeds are only become weeds when humans disturb them. Um, so I, I've probably said the story before about the uh, uh, Oxalis purpurea in the cemeteries and people going, oh, look at those, they're weeds, they're all through the cemeteries like a weed. And it's like, yeah, they've been there for about 150 years and humans dig up cemeteries a little bit. It's sort of what they're there for. And that's what disturbs them because yes. they've been planted somewhere and you dig a hole and one mm. of those little bulbs gets shifted somewhere else and yes. up it comes. Yes. And they produce lots of bulbs, but they don't spread anywhere. They sort of just stay there and form a slowly massing clump. And it's only when the the soil's disturbed that it really gets in and 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 forms, you know, nice little clumps here and there. And um, so to me, something that's taken 150 years to make a few clumps a couple of metres across isn't really a noxious weed. It's actually just a pretty tough garden plant. <laughs> and those yellow ones, they just spread and well, spread, and that, spread. And that's the worst of them because mm. they not only 
a little bit stoloniferous, but they they tend to grow from seed quite easily too. And that's when we get into trouble. The Oxalis corniculata and Oxalis pescaprey, they're the problems. Mm. But most of these ones and most of the South American ones don't do either of those things or might do one but not the other, in which case uh, it's those ones that do the seed and and the and the bulb spreading themselves that are, are the big problem and um as i say the other 795 species are pretty good um anyway that's that was my oxalis uh, that i've brought down the obligatory ox- oxalis that i've brought down fantastic okay we're going to go to our first caller and we have uh, sue in mount evelyn good morning sue Good morning, Pam, Virginia and Greg. How are you all? We're all well. That's good. Um, Virginia, if you have a look at your phone, I have actually texted you a picture um, that I want to talk about this morning too because I had a nice visitor at my back door the last two nights. Ah. Um, I'm ringing up, Pam, because I've got terrible trouble at the moment. I've never grown kale before. Right. And all I've got is sticks. Snails. And I don't know what's eating it. I'm having a lot of trouble with my broccoli too at the moment. Yeah, I'm sure you've probably got snails, Sue. Oh, is it? Yes. Yeah. I don't think it was. You a know fox. the pallets and things like that. Is that safe? Because I've got a cat now. Uh, no. No. Okay. No, uh, Sue. The I either put some some wire around the the photo that Sue has sent me is of a fox peering in her back door. Right now. I know foxes eat things in the garden because they eat the grapes. I love blackberries too, of course. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Which is one of the rain reasons <laughs> they such spread. a problem. They spread yes. everywhere. Because it's, it's I've, I've so got... so big, Jen. I think it's pregnant. And it's uh-huh. funny because I've got a recycle bin at my back door and I had a couple of eggs and things I'd forgotten about and there were eggs everywhere. He's opened up the she. egg carton. He's taken the plastic bottles underneath the carport. Is whether or not because I've got all that in pots at my back door. Right. Well, I know because for um, for the listener, I've got whoa, three acres of um, of wine grapes on my property, yeah. and the foxes get in there and they eat the grapes. Mm. Mm. Okay. Absolutely, undoubtedly. I don't know if yeah. think they eat kale though. No. I'm not if sure. your kale <laughs> is if your kale is being left with the central stalk. Yes. Yes, that's, that's, snails. that's snails. And that and okay. Well, I I've planted um, a New Zealand plant that I just cannot keep going because the snails are eating mm. so much of it. And because I'm, I've only got one of it. I've put snail bait around it and I've put a great big cover over it so yeah. the cats, can't, the cat and, and dogs can't get there. But yep. the rest of my things now, I'm I'm putting um, a combination of coffee grounds. Yep. And. Bashed up snail uh, shells, broken eggshells. Okay, well, they they won't crawl over anything that's really rough. Yep. So um, fine gravel also works as well. Yep. Um, they also won't cross copper. Uh, mm. So I know that you can also buy copper tape. Like if if your kale was in a pot, yep. you can actually rim the pot with on the outside tape. with copper tape, and okay. they won't cross the copper tape. The other thing, of course, is, um, and which I'm sure you've heard, is stale beer traps. You put out yeah. some stale beer and they... Um, drown. They in drown it. in it. They, they in get nice intoxicated. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and then you can just dispose of them <laughs> each morning. Bath. But um, Because the New Zealand thing I've planted, the Cleanthus, it is just, they just adore it. Mm. Yeah. Ducks I was like surprised too. to get your message, Jen. I thought you'd already left. I'm leaving in... Five hours. And I will tell you something really funny. Everybody will love this. 
Um, we have... When I, I, I met Virginia years ago when we had a sale on at work and she came back with all these tags from a friend down the road and uh, we befriended each other very quickly and I started helping Jin in the garden and um, we have a markdown section at work. Um, Which I often go to. bound plants and gave Jin this uh, Leonema green screen and anyway I've come back and I said... You can't plant it there, Virginia. It's going to get to two and a half metres tall, and it hasn't. It seems that it's like a sport. So Virginia's got something very special in her garden that I'm going to photograph and cut up very shortly. It's, it's only it's only hip high. It's the most. Yes, it's a beautiful it small shrub, and it's meant to be a tree. Good but, heavens! Um, you know how I asked if you could send me the picture. Mm-hmm. Well, my husband thought he had a secret admirer the other day because he got a text that says, Hello, darling. <laughs> Started off with the pictures actually went picture. to him. That's why I didn't get them. Right. No, it's really lovely. So I'm actually going to try and pop up and see because it'll probably start to go into flower in the next um, couple of weeks. It'll fl- It's in full bud. And so what then you're going to... Take Prop- some propagate from off it. it and just see what it actually does because uh, we've never seen anything like that. Anne was quite amazed, actually. It's quite exciting. It my, is. My Leonema is different. Yes, we'll yeah, have to say. Yeah, because on, um, like at the, we, we breed plants and things like that at work and uh, we've got a new um, plant called a microcog, which is a miniature uh, mini cog, but it actually sends off what they call sports, and it re- and it reverts back into not the main mini cog, but it actually has like different areas of foliage that grow on it, and I think that's probably what happened back then because it's probably about six or seven years ago now. My Leonema actually cut up uh, a piece that it's done that, and that's why it's ended up on the markdown section because the shape was wrong. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, you need there to you keep go. an eye out for all these things. Oh, you do. That's what, yeah. that's why it's always you, you look at the tree nurseries and things that always sell those straight stemmed. Uh, you know, everyone wants a, a six foot straight stem before their tree opens out, so they've got a parkland. But that can be pretty boring. You're better off getting one of the wonky looking ones because uh, yes. you might end up with a much more interesting tree. Exactly. Or, or yeah. Plant. Yeah. 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 Even the salvia seedlings and things like that. I've been keeping everything at the moment just to see what. Whether you, know, you get something new. Mm. Yeah, because I know years ago, marine blue, which most people would know, um, Larkman's had a beautiful one. I can't remember what they call it now, but it's actually got a different growth habit again. It actually gets taller than the um, marine blue, so, yeah. And if you look at the um, camellias in the botanic gardens, there's quite a few camellias have just got one branch, which yep. has got a completely different coloured flower yes. to the rest. Yes. That's yeah. a sport. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And quite a lot of the named camellias that people buy, that's how they started. They just... As a sport. Yep. yep. Okay. Yeah, we've been busy at work at the moment doing all the new couriers, trying to get the numbers up to... Um, I think we're going to be able to do it, get them all out onto the market next year, which is good because we've only been able to put um, uh, three of them on and Bunnings have actually bought the the embers, ember chimes. So that's actually, I don't think a lot of that's going to retail. We've got some... um, Two beautiful couriers, Pam, that we've bred with Annie's Delight and um, All right. Autumn Blaze to get a, a bigger plant but actually more compact. Right. Really nice. I, really lo- nice. I, love, beautiful. I love those orange couriers. I think yeah. they look fabulous. Yeah, they are. They're, they're lovely. 
yeah. And we've got two white ones and um, a pink one, which are all coming under the chimes range, we've called them. So, yeah, they're looking really good. Excellent. Mm. Okay, good on you, Sue. Okay, then. Nice to hear from you. You too. Okay, bye. bye. Uh, that number again, if you'd like to uh, join us this morning, 94190155. You are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. In the studio, we have Virginia Haywood and Greg Balderston. So do give us a call, 94190155. Greg, a couple of questions for you. Rhonda has rung in on the outside line. Now, she keeps her special bulbs in pots, doesn't water in summer, but loses them. What should she do? It's sort of it's one of those things where it I, it might depend on the species of the bulb. Um, often I remember as a um, when I first started growing bulbs in pots uh, as a teenager, thinking you'd see in a lot of the books these very shallow pots with these beautiful bulbs in them, and it took quite a while for me to figure out that that was just for display. And right. bulbs don't actually a lot of bulbs don't actually like growing in really shallow pots. So one thing might be the depth of the pot. So things like some of the alliums don't mind being in shallow pots. Oxalis don't mind being in fairly shallow pots. But things like crocuses and fritillarias and tulips and um, uh, a lot of that sort of – those sort of things don't like being in shallow pots at all. They, okay. they like to be – if you're planting them out in the ground, you might plant them three or four inches deep um, – and you want nearly that underneath them for their root run each season too. So um, a lot of the bulbs I grow at home in pots now, I've got in quite deep pots. The The width doesn't is not that important, but the depth d- definitely is. So, uh, and, it, and all those ones you just mentioned are all plants that wouldn't want to get too hot in yes, summer. So if yeah. they're so in a, a you, shallow black pot, they're going to get it's terribly gonna get hot. hot too. And mm. that's the other thing. So... Um, uh, dry is good. Hot and dry mightn't always be good. Some bulbs don't mind it. There's a lot of the amaryllis, I think, that can quite are quite happy in a very hot baking spot because again they're a shallow, uh, a shallow growing bulb, so the bulb's fairly near the surface. So if it is one of those species where the bulb's not too deep, where it would be growing in its natural environment, then a shallow pot's not going to be a problem. Mm. Um, but uh, as I say. Even if you've got, say, a crocus that comes from a really hot, dry climate like we have, um, it, there's a pretty good chance that the bulb's quite deep in the ground and you need to try and replicate that in a pot. And like Virginia said, the sides of the pot come into consideration then as far as heat. So if you've got a, a deep – even if it's in a deep pot but the pot's in the sun yep. and it's usually in nature would be – a few inches, uh, quite a fairly deep into the soil where it's uh, it's quite it's cool cooler. even in summer. Yeah, because um, I what I tend hot. to do with those things is I'll put the pot in another pot, so yeah, that you've create got an insulation layer. Yes, yeah, so yeah. create an insulation layer because yeah. that is a problem. I mean, and it's amazing how much a like you say a black pot, pot with its hot. with its sides exposed to the sunlight can really heat up. Oh, yes. uh, in in summer, and the other thing is too if you if you get a bit of a rain event in summer in a black pot and the pot does get wet and it does get sun on it, the worst thing possible for most of those bulbs is hot and wet. Uh, that's They'll just turn to mush yep. very quickly. So yep. uh, even if you're not watering it, and, and a lot of those bulbs can handle a little bit of moisture too, but the, the hot and the wet isn't any good. I've, I've actually had a couple of bad years with a lot of the bulbs 
uh, growing them in pots because it has been a little bit at home at least anyway it's it's been a little bit more damp during summer so there's been times where we've had decent rain which you think oh it's great for the garden and but when you've got bulbs in pots and you've got them in a spot that is does get a little bit of sun still um it's not so good because they they get horrible sort of bacterial and fungal infections on them and you can't sell them for two years because the whole colony sort of suffered um uh, so um yeah, I'd look at pot size. So definitely, uh, dependent on the species, make sure it's deep enough in a in a deep enough pot. Um, definitely, if it's uh, summer dormant, keeping it dry is a good idea. But there are some exceptions for that as well. And also, I, I all my summer dormant ones because I love summer dormant things because I don't need you don't to water, have to water them. them. Yeah, I yeah. think they're wonderful. <laughs> but my summer dormant pots, I always make sure they're in, in the shade. Well, she uh, Rhonda actually mentions uh, fritillarias and galanthus as well. To... I I just can't grow fritillarias. I've given up. They just hate the heat. They hate yeah. it. I mean, yeah. there is a series of things that are hard to get through summer in Australia. Yep. And and, I... and again, fritz are a great example of generally of a bulb that really likes to be planted deep. Yeah. Um, so if you're growing them in pots. The, probably, uh, and some of the fritz don't actually like being too dry in summer too. Um, I'm not real uh, a real good one to ask about which ones are which because I have trouble. I, I have trouble growing fritillaries in the ground, and I've got really good what soil that they, they that want. should suit them really well. Um, I can't grow but them even in the ground. Even meliagris, which is a fairly easy one to grow, I, mm. I tend to lose in the ground. But I can grow them in pots pretty well. And the reason being is because I've got them in a woodland situation, so they don't get sun in summer. They're they're cool, they're cool and dry. Um, but there are a few species I think that don't want to dry out too much. But if it's one of the more common ones, it's it's. But the English ones, just a shady, cool spot that's the, dry in summer is pretty good. Yeah, those beautiful English ones, which you see all over the place in England, you see them in places that are damp. And one thing we don't have much of is damp soil in summer. In summer, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just and, – and, and they are a woodland plant, so they're damp and they're cool. Mm. Mm. So Rhonda's other question is uh, she also keeps oxalis in a greenhouse, wanting to know if that's okay. Uh, if they're growing, then yes, I guess. Um, there's certainly uh, more – tropical or subtropical species too, like pedunculares, which would actually prefer being in a greenhouse. Um, but the, the main thing, again, is looking at where they come from in the wild and yes. seeing if it matches, And like any plant, if you can replicate what happens in the wild where they grow, um, it, it'll, or, or if it's a plant that can uh, adapt to different climates. Um, like I'm sure a lot of people find that Oxalis corniculata grows very well in their greenhouse um, and they don't want it to. Uh, the yellow one. The little yellow ground yeah. cover with the red leaf, yeah. Um, I've got um, actually Oxalis polyfiller I've got in my little greenhouse where I used to keep my bonsais and things and that gets watered regularly all the time. Right. And I found that was almost evergreen and it would actually grow. So instead of the last season's shoot dying off and going dormant in summer – it'd stay uh, green all summer and then the following year it'd grow from the old growth instead of grow- okay. regrowing from the bulb. So okay. I'd almost created some sort of oxalis shrub that shouldn't have been an oxalis <laughs> shrub. Um, but to say whether it liked it or not, I'm not sure. I think but it was just adapting. Surely um, your problem would be with the greenhouse in, in summer. In summer, yeah. And, that, it, and that's it, what I mean. Because you could also get it quite humid. So, so there's some south... 
American, most of the South American species of oxalis are summer growing. So they would, they would actually quite like a greenhouse. Um, so your oxalis triangularis, for instance, or one of the Australian natives, oxalis um, uh, magellanica, um, I think that's still what it's called. That's one of those ones I keep changing the name of, um, which is a nice little ground cover. Uh, it'll grow where baby's tears grow because it grows along uh, creek beds, you know, up in the Mount Kosciuszko and places like that. So yes. a cool, <clears throat> a cool darkish, moist spot in summer is perfect for it. So ones like those, yes, definitely. But your South African summer dormant species, you might be struggling to recreate what they would like in a greenhouse in summer because it's going to be moist and hot, which mm. they don't like. Mm. <laughs> I picked up one in Jindavik, which you told me was a, a more subtropical one with a yellow flower. Yeah, that's pedunculares, I think. It's yeah. absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, yep. yeah. I, so I have trouble growing that because I haven't got a good greenhouse. Well, I've got it growing outside. Yeah, and no, it's I, been I've there. killed one. And, mm. uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that was when they were nearly $80 each. So, um, um, well, I'll I just let, hope mine will still one. be there yeah. when I get back. <laughs> I, I don't think they like the frost, that one. I yes, think that's I, the one that doesn't I've, like frost at all. I've got it planted facing north yeah. at, on the house. Okay. So it won't get frost yeah. there, I don't think, because, you know, I'm saved because frost just rolls off me because yes. I'm on top of the hill. Yeah, I'm pretty lucky. same too, but it, it, we obviously I get enough that it, mm. the Oxalis pedunculus didn't like it because it, uh, it uh, melted very quickly. Well, um, I'll just cross yeah. my fingers on that one because yes. it's very beautiful. Well, if it's doing well now, it's, it should be, uh, oh. yeah. It, sh- it should well, be okay. It got through last winter, but but as I say, the the as far as growing bulbs, summer dormant bulbs in a greenhouse, it, if they're dry and cool, they're okay. So if you can pop it underneath the bench, mm. and it's not too humid, mm. and there's no sun beating down on the pot and warming it up too much, it, it'll probably do okay. But um, if it's really wet and humid in a in in your greenhouse in summer and quite hot. Um, it's most most of those summer dormant bulbs aren't going to do terribly well. It's yep. not it's not, not the perfect sort of condition for them. Yep, yep. You are listening to the Three CR Gardening Show. We're running through until nine fifteen, so you've got about half an hour to jump on the phones if you'd like to uh, ask a gardening question. That number is nine four one nine zero one double five nine four one nine zero one double five greg you've brought in something rather special that's actually opened up into flower as you drove in this morning um and it's it's wrapped in a bag that's wrapped in a bag that's wrapped in a bag and there's a good reason for that there's a very good reason for that (laughs) um so i might need a a bit of a moment to unwrap those okay Um, okay pardon the crinkling (laughs) now this is very exciting that it's actually come into flower just this morning. Yes. And I think this is the second time Greg's managed to pull this off because last time he was on, he had something come into flower on the trip down for the first time ever. <laughs> but well, uh, th- this is a slightly more. Hang on, I'll just pull one out. Oh, wow. Yeah. I think that, I think that's the one that opened this morning. I'm not sure if you want to smell it or not. No, no. I'll, I'm, I'm quite sure happy you will in a minute. From a you, you will in a minute. Um, this, one, this one's actually, it's Aram Pictum. Um, and it's it's generally known to have finished flowering by now. It's, um, the main <laughs> the main reason uh, it's still flowering is because I haven't planted the bulbs. I haven't got round to planting the bulbs yet because I was tossing up whether I wanted to pop them for the nursery or not. Okay. And so they've sort of been sitting there while I've been tossing over whether I should uh, uh, pop things up to sell or or just plant them in the ground and do the mail order thing. And so they've been sitting in the shed slowly flowering. 
And okay. they usually, they've usually, the, the ones in the ground have, have been and gone like a month or more ago. And those ones are just like, oh, should we, should we? And it's just been a little bit humid, and they did. And so I've walked into the shed one morning, and it's like, and what's thought, that smell? What's, what's a smell? cat been doing? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, well, you can start – I'm sure you can smell that already starting to permeate the air in here. And uh, um, it's, it, it's, it looks wonderful and it smells terrible. And it's, it's almost black. So the inside of the space – these are quite small. So in the ground that they'll get um, to about 20 centimetres or uh, what's that, about, um, you know, eight or ten inches tall, I guess. Yep. Um, and it's a greenish colour on the outside and black burgundy on the inside – of the spathe, um, a, a little typical arum sort of flower. Yes. The odd thing about these, and I'm actually wondering, I'd heard that they'd changed the genus name because of this, is okay. it's the only species of genu- uh, of arum that flower in autumn because most of the others flower from midwinter through into spring. For those who aren't sure, an arum is a lily. It's a, it's a sort of a lily well, flower. Well, that's, that's the common name, yeah. Mm. So, so the um, Xantodecias, for instance, have got a very similar flower and the... And the um, uh, the green goddess and things like that. Uh, mm. uh, um, so it, it's basically a, an adapted leaf, I think, more than a petal. Um, and the spadix, which is like a, in the white versions, is yellow. And mm. these ones is like a. It is the most beautiful, deepest, deepest, yeah, royal black purple. Um, but the smells just the smells not hideous. Good. Yeah, but uh, I've I've got a couple in my garden which I got from you, and somebody keeps digging them up. Digging them up the as they come are. up. Yeah, I don't okay. know whether it's the well, rabbits see, the thing, or the thing maybe is they're attracted by the, by the smell. By yeah, the or, smell. Or my, um, the, and I did wonder if maybe it was it was something that the foxes liked because um, of the well, smell. My, I remember having not this one, but one that smells just as nice as this one uh, called Arum Dioscorides, which is a, a spring flowering one. I'll just wrap it up because it's because uh, it, it stinks. <laughs> it stinks. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Luck, and and there's, there's somebody live in the studio after a spam because they won't thank us. <laughs> no, it, it does it does dissipate fairly quickly. Yeah, um, no, it'll be fine. <laughs> Arum dioscorides I had flowering in the garden, and it's a beautiful spring flowering species that is a light green with dark, almost black splotches on it. It's like someone's flicked it. Ooh, with, it sounds um, gorgeous. Uh, someone's flicked it with um, matte black paint. Um, so. It's quite an interesting looking flower, but it smells as bad as that one, sometimes even worse. And I remember I was out one night potting up or watering something and it was in flower and I thought tomorrow I've got to get my camera out, get a, get the camera out and get a good couple of photos of it because there, there was maybe 20 or 30 flowers in this cluster and wow. you know they were nearly a foot tall and it was stunning. And so I got up excited the next morning and went outside to take a few pictures and one of the dogs had been out there about oh. 20 minutes beforehand and rolled in them oh. <laughs> and flattened the whole uh, flattened the whole crop of them. Um, but, yeah, as I say, so that one's uh, autumn flowering species um, and obviously it smells to attract flies or yes, such it's pollinators. pollinating creatures. Um, uh, usually they flower a lot earlier than this, but the foliage on them, again, like we were saying before about these things that um, we often buy for the flowers, the flowers are only there for, uh, you know, a couple of days. The arum lily flowers only don't last very long because they sort of do their thing and then disappear fairly quickly. Um, but the foliage on it's beautiful. You've got mm. this lush, deep green 
uh, leaves that can get quite big. Um, so they, those le- the leaves off the Arampictum can get to about 30 centimetres long or about a foot long. Um, they've got this fine, deep burgundy edging to the leaves and quite a structurally beautiful flower. And it's a beautiful deep green too. Mm. And you've got this lush green foliage all winter when everything else is bare sticks. And um, So as a foliage plant, it's a, it's a great little thing. And... Again, like most arums, they're quite tough, especially in really dry shade areas. Mm. So you can plant them like they'll grow underneath Italian, an old 150 year old Italian cypress where most things won't. Yes, um, and Pinus radiata. It depends on the soil. I think it's probably the so if if the soil's well drained and fairly loose, it, they w- would do okay. Because yeah. I've got I've got a series of Pinus radiata that I've always thought I wanted to take down, but I don't anymore because I realise how dependent the yellowtail black cockatoos are on them. They do like them, don't they? Yeah, yeah. they're really so the, well, quite if you, if you wanted to grow them underneath those, the one thing you've got to keep in mind is that they're going to get water when they need it, which is over winter. And like you were saying earlier, even now, and we've had it hasn't been the driest season we've had by any stretch, so if you're going out now and finding that underneath your trees is fairly dry It'd be at this problem. time of the year when they're starting to grow, then that's a bit of a concern. So you've got to put them somewhere where they're going to get wet when they well, need to be wet. Also, I mean, pines do exude something that does kill plants, doesn't it? Because, again, those New Zealanders have developed a new um, product to kill your plants, which is um, not based on, it's based based on, on yeah, pine yeah. trees. Yes. Well, and, and not uh, poisonous in gum the same trees way. can do a very similar job with tannins and different mm, things stripping true. out of their foliage as that's well. That's true. Um, so, yeah, as long... Uh, I, I've got them growing very close to pine trees, and the biggest concern they have is the fact that they don't get enough, um, quite enough water. They don't. They don't often get. If it's been a dry year, they mm. won't have enough moisture in winter that mm. gets down. Because mm. again, they're quite. They can be quite deep. They can be. Um, uh, I always say inches in those sorts of measurements, but yeah, they can be five or six inches deep. Um, some of the bigger arum bulbs, and and the bigger bulbs on that, those ones are only. Um, an inch or so across or a couple of centimetres across, but um, I've dug up tubers out of the garden that, you know... Uh, Gosh, that uh, thing, yeah. a foot across. Yeah, right. well, half half a foot across. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, and quite, you know, very substantial tubers, and they don't want to be, uh, you know, a few centimetres underneath the ground. They oh, want to no. be quite deep. And, and again, it's, and of course, it's hard for a, water to get down that far. Yeah, and and under tree. a pine tree, it's actually difficult to get a tuber that. Yeah, yeah, deep, yeah. you know, you can't get in there. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I've done is given myself permanent tennis elbow from using well, a pickaxe too If you're much. watering and feeding something underneath the pine tree, they'll enforce their root system around that to take advantage of the fact that you're watering and feeding yeah. as well. So <laughs> yeah. then it makes it even harder. Yeah. It's, a, it's harder to get down there. It's so a double-edged sword. It, it isn't the best place for them, but you can do it. It's possible no, to do it. No, it's just I've got all these pines and I'd love to get something underneath them and I haven't been able to find – I mean, because – If you're happy with plants that – I don't call weeds, but some people do, um, would be uh, maybe the Arasarum. Uh, Arasarum vulgares spreads itself around. Um, and it, as long as you've got open fields either side of it, it's only going to spread underneath the trees. Um, and it's in the Aroid family. Um, and it, again, it grows in winter. It's got beautiful little spotty variegated foliage. Um, very tough. And has these little cobra Oh, heads. it's that one, yes, yeah, with, the, with the striped and green and it's sort of burgundy deep, deep on the top, and then purple. it stripes down yeah. into white at the base. And if you're in the wrong, if you if you've got the wrong spot for it, it's horrible because you'll never get rid of it. Um, if but you've in got a the situation, right spot for 
And and that's my problem with people calling things weeds is that they're a weed in a certain spot, yes, mm. but sometimes they're actually quite a useful plant and you're better off having something like that where nothing else will grow as long as it can't escape somewhere where you don't yes, want it. yes. Mm. Uh, well, than not having anything in at all. in my bottom paddock, I had this little patch of um, oxalis, flat to the ground and very, very, very pink, really and gorgeous. And I and I, year after year, I think, God, I must dig that out. It's yeah. an oxalis. It's a weed. Is this uh, winter growing on? Yeah, it might be one of the purpureas. I think absolutely yeah. beautiful. And then after about. Six years and it hadn't spread an inch. Yeah, I dug it up and put it in a pot and called it part of my collection because <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't spreading. It wasn't yeah. a problem. Well, that, that's what I was saying about in the mm. in the cemeteries that mm. it only spreads because of humans and mm. you've helped it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I've dug it out and it hasn't come back in the in the paddock either. Yeah, yeah. So obviously I dug deep enough to get it out. To get it out. Yeah. But and you know I've got so many weeds in that paddock. One oxalis that didn't spread was the least of my problems. <laughs> At the moment, I'm just building up to all the cape weed. Yes. So, and the other interesting thing about the aroids too is that they uh, produce their own heat. So, if you have an infrared camera and and shine it on the on the spathe of those things, they can actually warm themselves up. And I've read something recently that it's different to how I thought it happened. Uh, what I'd always read was that it was um, using radioactive isotopes of um, um, potassium. Um, but I'd read somewhere recently that it was some, something to do with their metabolism or something in the in the in the flower stem. But they actually produce their own. Most of the aroids do. So they uh, most aroid flowers glow in the infrared to some degree. Good heavens! Um, and some do it really well. Like the dead horse arum, the helicodocerus can actually warm itself up by about four degrees more than ambient wow. temperature. Gosh. And it encourages a small species of lizard to live inside it and protect the flower. And then. The lizard later in the season eats the berries and disperses the berries in the rocks. Um, and there's also simple carpets. Where, whereabouts? Uh, they're in, in. They grow in on uh, bird nesting islands in the Mediterranean. Right. Um, fa- fabulous. And yes. They smell bad enough to compete with dead chicks and rotting fish and bird poo oh, <laughs> to attract the pollinator. Yes. Um, and they, they're really interesting. They trap the flies inside them and feed them nectar and. Um, and then once they think the flies have buzzed enough pollen around their their female parts at the base of the, the in, inside the flower chamber, the little fingers wither up and let the flies crawl out across all the pollen sacks, and they get covered in pollen and hopefully go and fly to another flower and do the same trick. And they smell like a bag of sausages that's been left in a hot car for three days. They're terrible, <laughs> dead, rotting meat smell. It's um. It's uh, a really bizarre flower, the dead horse arum. There's, uh, they actually, when they first open, they smell like a fresh bag of mincemeat too, which is even more disconcerting. <laughs> they start off smelling like fresh meat and then they go rotten after about six or eight hours, yeah. So do your, your dogs, I presume, roll in those as well? They don't seem to be that bothered by that one. Um, the flies certainly love it. it. It's really macabre. So you watch, I've got videos of the flower when it's fully open and I won't go into too much detail, but it's not for anyone with a, a weak stomach because okay. there's, yeah, there's little white things crawling around and, yeah. and flies buzzing trapped inside and it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty terrible, yeah. Um, I think, uh, again, I've probably mentioned this before, that, uh, one of the botanists who first sort of brought it back to, to Europe uh, to to England, um, uh, I can't remember who it was. He he, he said uh, for an hour or so after opening, it was best viewed through a telescope. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, it's a, 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 
very interesting genus of plants, the aroids, <laughs> uh, for sure. And uh, uh, well, the Simplicarpus actually produces enough heat to melt snow, so it, it, the flowers come, emerged through the snow layer in North America. Right in the swamplands of North America, yeah. these little. Uh, burgundy green looking Sydney opera houses appear out of th- in, in these little patches of melted snow and that's from the heat they the, the, the flowers can produce Isn't it's that extraordinary? So, it is really extraordinary I mean the, the, the survival of the species on yeah. this earth is just incredible Okay let's go next to uh, Fred who's in St Albans Good morning Fred Good morning uh, Yeah and how are you? We're thank- well thank you Okay uh, I'm uh, chasing some uh, creepers or climbers, and uh, I want. Uh, I remember getting a plant one time, died on me, a silverish type of thing. I got a golden one, it's, uh, but it's pretty hardy, and I'm happy with that one. But I want to mix that one with, with uh, some other plant, with some other creepers. What sort of conditions are you growing them in? Oh, uh, well, they're in the front. They get a bit of... Uh, mo- uh, they get the morning sun till about um, 7 o'clock. The soil is pretty fertile. Your uh, problem with climbers is that they tend to go up and so you have something very attractive well, at the top. Well, I got, I got the pergola for them. All and right. I want to uh, get them to climb on the pole. I got a couple of those, but I want them to, to climb on the pole and... Uh, I find that the, the, the shed that I have is not enough, and doesn't matter if they drop their leaf. I'm pretty uh, thing, but uh, uh, I do want them to cover the afternoon sun in summertime. Right. So you're looking for some shade from them. Yeah. Well, you've got sort of different options. You know, if you're looking for shade, a lot of your ornamental grapes grow quite quickly. Actually, actually that's what I was thinking of. As soon mm. as you mentioned it. Uh, it's a Vitas Vina Fiera or something like yes, that. Yes. Yeah, yeah, ornamental you, uh, ornamental grapes. Yeah. What would I get one of those? Oh, you you find them around quite easily in the nurseries, and I think you'd even find them now that Bunnings has turned into being a decent nursery. They've yeah. actually employed a horticulturalist. Okay. But, yeah, yeah. And they're, then, they're also easy from cuttings too. So if you know someone with an ornamental grape, a lot of those really vigorous climbers are actually easy to grow from cutting. Um, uh, like the ones I know with, with uh, sort of grape ones are all eating grapes. Eating grapes, oh, right. all right. Mm. But but then if you and if you wanted flowers as well, yeah. Well, then you could put you could grow a couple of different things through it as long as because the thing with your grape is it needs to be pruned. Yes. yes. And quite hard. So you could if you wanted flowers, for example, you could grow a clematis through it as long as it was a clematis that needed to be pruned at the same time. Okay. And could grow competitively with the grape during the growing season as well, so yeah. you, you, okay. it doesn't get swamped. Yeah, that, that, that'd be great because they tend, they, they, are they leave the same colour or are they like uh, different? Like, the, I'm not familiar with the, with the colour of the leaf. Well, the 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 lo- lovely thing about the grape is it'll change colour in at this time of year. So you'll get before it drops its leaves, it'll be beautiful. Okay, yeah. And then something like your clematis would give you a big bright flower in summer or in spring and of course the other thing you can do is if you grow the um, Chinese star jasmine that actually stays covered from the bottom it's the only it's the only one of the climbers I think I've got about two or three different varieties I got one uh, I don't know what it is but it's a yellowish one it's it's comes flowers in winter time I got one of the that one at the back 
I don't know what I forgot what it's called because has it got yeah. quite a, a, a quite a small, quite bright yellow flower? That's right. Yeah, yes, yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, that's a, a jasmine. Jasmine too, is mm-hmm. it? I know there's a few of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know, the, but uh, yeah, no, I want something different with a different leaf type of thing. Uh, well, that's, that jasmine's got quite a narrow leaf, so the to put something like a ornamental grape up, you've got a nice big leaf. Mm-hmm. And, of yeah. course, it will give you wonderful autumn colour yeah. and, and pathen- shade. And pathanocissus, if, if the grapes, you, want, you like that sort of style of growing, uh, another yeah. close, similar related plants, the pathanocissus, uh, like um, Virginia creepers and uh, um, there's a silver vein creeper, uh, uh, Pathanocissus henriana, which can be a real nightmare <laughs> if it's in the wrong spot again, because uh, yeah. it's again it's fairly vigorous. But during the summer, you've got this dark green leaf with silver veining, uh, okay. and then in in winter, it'll colour up whether it's in shade or sun. It'll colour up really bright, hot reds and pinkish reds and warm oranges and yellows. So you okay. get this contrast in the colour itself in in autumn as well. Okay, uh, and if you that, if you go yeah. to the nursery and just say you want things in the Virginia creeper family, they yeah, will tell you about okay. the different ones. Virginia creeper family, mm. yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, as far as the ground cover ones, I only want one or two because they usually take over. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, can you um, suggest? Uh, I don't know if you know what I mean, but this the one I got. It's uh, it's a little skinny leaf type of thing. It's gold, really golden. Well, look, at it. it's pretty, pretty hardy. I think it's the winter flowering jasmine. Okay, okay. Uh, uh, maybe I should take a couple of samples. And that's, yeah. Yes, that's uh, a good idea. Visual ID is a lot easier. Yes. <laughs> that would be a lot easier because I can't, I'd like to remember all the Latin names, but um, there's no way they come to me when I need them. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's a good idea. Take a cutting with yeah. you. Okay, thank you very much for that. Good okay, luck. Good on you. Bye. Yeah, bye. And uh, next up, we have Hugh from the Yarra Valley. Good morning, Hugh. Oh, good morning, garden gurus from Sri Seha. Good morning, Victoria. And I got some questions on Brunswigias. They're terribly important to me. I got about 24 Brunswigias. Uh, when I got them, they were already three, four years old, and I have them for about 15, and I got them to flower. I think they would have flowered a bit earlier, but I think Brunswick is one of those bulbs that um, that sulks. It just doesn't like to be repotted. Anyway, I got five, and I had five in flower the size of a steering wheel, and they were the the Josephine. Now the other ones, some of them they show signs of leaf, and the other ones they just stare at me. They do nothing. Now my question is. Should I feed them a little bit? I, I'm actually the uh, members of the amaryllis family. I'm not big on. I'm not. Uh, there's you can definitely get some great advice on those from uh, people like George Simler, um, who, who's good on those. And there's some. If you're on Facebook, there's an Australian bulb group, and they're very uh, amaryllis centric. Uh, so there's a lot of people on there growing. Uh, the Brunswickias and the um, uh, Hayamanthus and things like that. So you'd get much better advice on there about feeding them. I'm not, as I say, I don't really have many of the the big um, amaryllids, um, and I'd always careful with feeding bulbs, especially with nitrogen. 
because um, a lot of these things come from places that don't really have very rich soil. So um, uh, I'd certainly be careful on it. Um, Particularly as most of them are African yeah. and yes. seem to come from um, sort of those areas that are quite, you know, plains. It's pretty poor soil, So yeah. I suspect the soil is fairly poor. The South African soil is very poor. Mm. Yes. So I suspect feeding them wouldn't be a good idea. But, but feeding a little bit at the right time might be a good idea. But as you say, if you've just repotted them, they might just be sulking. And, they, and like I've had a um, – uh, I'm trying to remember the name. It's one of the few big amaryllids that I have got, and it's a hybrid between the Belladonna and the Brunswickia. Um, uh, and – it didn't put up leaves one year, and I thought I'd killed it. This thing, this bulb's, you know, there's yeah, half I, the size I, I, of a football, and I thought I'd killed it. And um, the following season, it flowered. Um, it, it wasn't a very good flower, but it, it tried and had a couple of things on it. And this year, it was over a metre tall. Um, uh, yeah, I, 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 somebody sold me um, Brunswiga cross belladonna, and it was a disaster. Anyway, is there a telephone number for the people who are experts in Brunswick? I, I would contact Fernie Creek because yeah, well, most of the members most of them are members of Fernie Creek. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the other person I would think of is Martin Feruga. Yes, well, if you can, uh, I'm not sure of his contact details, but um, I, he has grown them. Before, but I think, I think he has yeah. given them a little bit away. Yeah, I don't think he grows them now, but um, certainly he he would uh, be up on. Being able to grow them, but uh, George has a, a George Simler has a, a little bulb nursery now. I don't know George Simler. He's Fernie Creek. Contact yeah. Fernie Creek. Yeah, Fernie Creek, and and there's oh, a couple of other members. Yes, I know, I know the chap. He has a little beard and um, and, and things like that. Yes, now I know. George and, and there's a few other members of Fernie Creek who I would say would probably yes, the yes, best no, people to talk to about growing emeralds in, in Australia. Yeah. George Simler. Now the other thing is, uh, I've been given some naked ladies yesterday and um, they're only the size of an um, of an ordinary household onion now if I want to pot them do you think I should go into an 8 inch pot or right away in a bigger pot um, well the belladonnas are probably better in the ground they're such tough things if, but if you can't I wouldn't over pot them I, I, I think they're better if they're sort of um, a bit crowded. They're, yeah, they're like nerines and things. That, that uh, I, I had a pot of nerines where the pot was just something that they sat on, and the bulbs actually were completely out of the potting mix, spilling over the edge of the pot oh, with all their roots in there, just the to anchor down. The yeah, yeah. Um, so I wouldn't over pot it. And the thing with pots is, these things often sulk when you disturb their roots, not when you repot yeah. them. Um, so. If it's getting a little bit too big for the pot, then you just tap the pot off and stick it in another pot and leave the roots alone. Yeah, okay. um, so I, I'd, I, yeah, I, I would tend to put it in a smaller pot um, yeah. and let it get comfortable in there rather than putting a, a tiny bulb in a, in a massive big pot that it's not going to fill out for quite a few years and might sulk in for some time too. Yeah. Pam, can I throw another question in for Certainly, Hugh, yes. There was yesterday somebody talking on from... Um, this South African plant, um, oh, no, the Protea flora. Right. And he said to put them into pots. You can put them in pots, provided you repot them every two years. Well, that makes sense. But then he said that you should water the Proteas twice every second day. 
not twice a week, every second day. Now, to my way of thinking, Poteas, like the, like the Ponsvigas, they come from South Africa too. And that rainfall there is, is not exactly uh, huge, it is sparse. Could that be right? Why every second day to feed, to water um, Proteas in a pot? You've got to remember, though, in pots it's a slightly different um, uh, growing habit than what they would have if they were in the ground. Mm. Things like that from dry areas uh, have very strong root systems and are able to get their roots down somewhere where they've got access to water in the drier parts of the year. And in a pot, they haven't got that option. So a a good example would be the perennial sunflowers, which I've grown for quite a few years in pots. Um, They're terrible things to grow in pots because they just dry the pots out in a couple of days or in a couple of hours even sometimes in the middle of summer. And you've got to keep watering them. But in the ground, they're actually really drought tolerant. And that's because of their root system. And if a plant with a really strong root system from an arid dry climate is stuck in a little tiny pot, and needs to grow and keep healthy leaves through the summer, then you've got to give it access to that water that it, other, that it otherwise can't get because its roots are stuck in a little tiny pot. Um, so as long as the, dry, the potting mix is well-drained and you are keeping the water up to it, it's, not, it's often those things don't like sitting in stagnant water that's there for a long time. The water running through their root systems isn't such a problem. Um, so I'd say it's pr- probably that would be the advice that you got which sounds right just from the fact that it's something that would have a huge root system in the wild and it's confined to a very small pot. Yeah. So it hasn't got and that the, backup resource of water. Sorry to in. I don't want to um, exercise my friendship with Risia. Um, the, the thing I totally disunderstand, before I say, say my question, I want to say he's also exporting proteas and the biggest buyer is Portugal, and they put them onto graves. But that is now my last question. I didn't understand what he was saying about pruning. Somebody asked him, how do you prune big Portea bushes? Now, the Portea will grow, grow sidewise. It grows, say, two, three meters high, and then it will just say, that's it, and it will grow sidewise. Now, if you, and then he said you can't hack into dead wood, but um, the stems on the side, they may be, say, five centimeters, two inches thick. Um, I, I think that will sprout again. Is that your experience? I, I've always just pruned my proteas by collecting the flowers. I mean, Is that enough? Is this in the pot or in the ground? In the ground, and it is, it is on a neighbor's block, and it is just about three, four meters in diameter, maybe more. And um, I, I don't think they'd like getting hacked back into the old wood. It doesn't sound like something they'd recover from very well. You can go into the wood, provided there is a leaf. Yes, yeah, that's yes, what I would have said. Yes, there has to be a leaf. Yeah, and um, and if you want to control one like that, I think you're better off doing yeah. it in little bits all the time rather than letting it go mm. for ten years and then yeah. deciding to. Uh, uh, lay into it with a chainsaw or something. Um, it's probably best done yeah, no, will, on a regular I will, basis. I will, I will a have bit. another look at it. Uh, Pam, thanks very much for letting me go on here. You're welcome. See you when I see you. Okay, bye, Hugh. Panel, thanks very much. Bye-bye, bye. Victoria. Bye. Okay. Yeah, I find with my pruning, that's 
what I do all the time now. I cut back to where I can see growth. And if I want to cut it further, I wait till mm. that growth has taken on a bit and then can go under. I never cut into. Well, there's, obvi- there's, there's some you can, things though, you can. Like Budleys yes. and, mm. and um, yeah, there's, there's plenty of stuff you can. Or ber- Berberus are actually a good one. You can hack pretty much right down to the ground or, or red stem dogwoods, for instance. You know, things well, you that meant to as well. That's, with that's the red stem where you get dogwood, most you? of the, yes. uh, the nice coloured growth, yeah. And I must admit, I did prune my Budley last year with a chainsaw. Yes, <laughs> but with my salvias, for example, yeah. I just I, I take them. I've gone through my because I'm going away. I've pruned them all, and I've taken them back to where I see I can see growth. And then when I come back in in August, I will do it again, and I'll get the shape I want then because there will be growth, and there'll be mm. growth further down the stem. Mm. So I'll be able to have another go. Mm. And you'll be heading into spring. Then, and so I'm heading into growing quickly. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And see, I've pruned them now, mainly because I'm going, but it's autumn and it's warm and the soil's warm, so they're still growing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I, I, unless you know what you're doing, I think don't ever cut into old No, wood. or do it, do it in parts, plant. like you were saying. Yeah. You cut it back a little bit and see what happens. See what happens, If yeah. it throws shoots further down into the dead wood, then, mm. then go, for go for it. Yeah. <laughs> or, I mean, just, just do one selective stem, mm. you yeah. know, and see, and what, see what happens, happens. first. Yeah. I mean, I've got a persicaria that I cut down to the ground Every couple of years, I mean, you know, there are things you can do it with. And in the botanic gardens, they cut some of the gum trees down to the ground yeah. every couple of years. And the c- cottonus or cotinus, depending which you say, the smoke bush. Yeah, that coppices really well. Yeah. Yes, you can chop it down mm. to the same point every year. Lapigeria is not so much. My sister tried that when she was uh, very young to help that out. And there was a hundred and odd year old lapigeri growing up the front of the house. And, uh, yeah, that took about 20 years to recover, I oh, think. Oh, so. dear. <laughs> I put in a lapigeria when I first moved in, and it has grown exactly one foot. Yeah. I don't think it's happy. <laughs> <laughs> There's a fabulous one at the Conifer Nursery up at Fernie Creek. It's apt right along a fence, and when it's in flower, it's just They're pretty breathtaking. Amazing, they? yeah. It's absolutely fabulous. It's South American, isn't it? I think so, yeah, Chilean. Yes. And mm. it's such a beautiful thing, but uh, mine, it's grown from – it's probably – even grown backwards. It's not dead. That's the mm. only thing you could say about it. Mm. Yeah. I think it doesn't like summer. Mm. No, it's a, it's a, it's, I think it's a lack of humidity, actually, in a lot of instances. Where they come from, It's the, the temperatures are probably fairly similar to us. Um, maybe not so hot in the summer, but it's yeah, the lack of humidity, I think, that they don't really appreciate the, yes. that hot, dry, uh, I, well, they don't like. Nearly every plant I plant, I think about, I look at it, I read about it, and I think... What will it do with the hot north wind? Yeah. That is my criteria. When you know, when I lived in Britain, I never thought about a hot north wind. Now no. all I think about is hot north wind. Exactly. Exactly. You don't even get hot southerly you know, winds there. <laughs> well, in north east. Yeah. And 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 because I'm on top of a hill, the hot north wind is such a problem. Mm. So I have to be so careful what I plant on that side of my garden, which is the highest side. Mm. And as I said, I've been going through my garden at the moment. I've I've dug out so much stuff. I've sent a whole lot of stuff to Rip and Lee. Because they, you know, big things, they want big things. Yes. And I'm just at that point, it's over 10 years old now, so I just need to refine it. So I'm having so much fun with my refining. <laughs> You're creating lots of opportunities, as Exactly, exactly. <laughs> lots of opportunities. And also rescuing things that, you know, like the cyclamen I found that were underneath all this sour... And I, I cut it all back and pull it out, and, and there, there they were in yeah. flower, yeah. looking beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> How the hell they'd survived, I don't know. Yeah. Well, they survived for a few million years, I guess. So, um. Greg, we we need to tell listeners if if you're closing down the nursery but you're still keeping mail order. Yep. 
How would listeners get in touch with you if they'd like some bulbs sent to them? So for the next couple of months, I'm still doing the local markets at uh, Woodend. Oh, for the next couple of months? Uh, yeah, Woodend and Lancefield I'll probably do at least until spring. And okay. also Castlemaine Farmers Market, which is the first Sunday. So yeah, Woodend's first Saturday, Castlemaine first Sunday, and Lancefield's the fourth Saturday of each month. So I'll definitely do those for the next couple of months. Yep. Um, I'm also having a little bit of a plant sale thing at home every third Saturday. Oh, okay. Uh, so that's at 2931 Melbourne Lancefield Road, Romsey. 2931 Lancefield Road, Romsey. Um, so that's the third Saturday from about 10 till 4, I guess. Um, so you can come up and, and visit. I wouldn't call it a nursery now. It's, it's sort of just a garden with pots in it. <laughs> <laughs> but I've been there often because the pots are so wonderful, it is well worth going. If the timing's good and there's lots of bulbs in flower, it can be interesting if you're into that sort of thing, yeah. Um, and uh, the mail order bulbs, I'll, uh, the best way is to probably on Facebook, I guess. Um, I post on uh, especially my personal web uh, personal page. Um, yep. There's interesting stuff on there, including the fungi and the forests of Mount Macedon and the bulbs and some of the gardens I work in and my dogs and whatever. Um, but uh, I haven't really got a website, so it's a bit hard to follow, but I do uh, um, post on the Facebook page when I Which have is the bulbs. just under your name, Greg Balderston. That's my personal page, yeah, yes. and that's probably the easiest that's way the to see it. That's the page I always use with yeah. you. Um, but I do have the Longer Names Plants and on Instagram. And also, uh, Fermi from the Alpine Garden Society is always uh, very nicely uh, emails all the members catalogues that he receives yes. so i always send him a list of bulbs and so if you remember the alpine garden society of victoria you you'll get also get your... one too via yes. email um and uh, otherwise maybe just yeah find the for phone people, number or... for people who don't have facebook do you have an email address uh yes uh it's uh, uh longanomus at uh, spell that uh, l-o-n-g-i-n-o-m-u-s uh, at gmail.com. Um, and as I say, the, the, mainly the bulbs will be sold uh, in uh, summer, so from maybe late January, February, right through until I, they're growing and I really need to put them in the ground. <laughs> um, and, yeah, so uh, – and hopefully I'll be able to get something a bit better organised as, as time goes on, but um, at, for the moment that's – Okay. Uh, that's that's what's happening with the bowls, yeah. Excellent. Okay, so every third Sunday, 2931 Lansfield Road. Every third on, Saturday. Every third Saturday, Saturday sorry. Yeah. Yep. Okay, yep. wonderful. Thanks for Or at your usual markets. At the usual markets for the yep. next few months, yeah. Fantastic. All right, we've run out of time for yet another week. Of course, uh, you have been listening to the 3CR Gardening Show and we will be back again next Sunday. We're always here starting from 7.30, running through until 9.15. A big thank you to uh, Rosemary and to Liz who've been working the outside phones. But uh, as I say, stay tuned next week and we will be back. Until then, bye for now.